0: Around the world, populations are ageing rapidly. There is currently more than 1 billion people over the age of 60 years, representing 14% of the global population. By 2050, this population will have more than doubled to 2.1 billion. With population ageing as the backdrop, a number of global challenges take centre stage, including rising rates of non-communicable diseases, recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic, the threat of future global pandemics, climate change, mobilization of civil society, and economic uncertainty. The United Nations Decade of Healthy Ageing, launched in 2021, represents a concerted action to prioritize healthy aging and improve the lives of older people. Amidst the backdrop of the decade now is the time to explore challenges and strategies to improve health and social systems that ultimately impact the function and quality of life of current and future generations of older people. My name is Jane Barrett, Secretary-General of the International Federation on Aging. Join me along with esteemed experts and colleagues in a series of dialogues which aim to help reframe the intersecting challenges that impact not only the health and well-being of older people, but the way we all live and age. This is the Reframing Healthy Aging Podcast. Welcome back to the Reframing Healthy Ageing podcast. Today's episode centres on equity in healthy ageing and the rights of older people. Social determinants like where we're born, our age, gender, race and education level have the power to impact our health and ability to age well across the life course. Inequities exist and to address the greatest global challenges they cannot be ignored. It is important to examine health inequities within global systems, intergenerationally, and within groups of older people to develop strategies which target the most at-risk groups. Today's conversation highlighted the injustices that older people face and challenges to achieving healthy ageing for all, while bringing particular attention to how health equity impacts health outcomes, access to care, and prevention strategies for those with cardiovascular disease. It was a pleasure to be joined by Ms. Nancy Brown, Chief Executive Officer of the American Heart Association, an organisation which aims to be a relentless force for a world of longer, healthier lives. Ms. Brown is also the co-chair of the World Economic Forum's Global Health Equity Network. That aims to mobilize executive leadership and commitment across sectors and geographies to prioritize action on health equity, ensuring that every organization prioritizes actions, products, programs, and policies that promote well being. Sridhar Venkatapuram is an associate professor in global health and philosophy. He is based at the King's College London Global Health Institute, where he is Deputy Director and Director of Global Health Education and Training. Professor Venkatapuram conducts interdisciplinary research that aims to improve understanding and realisation of health equity and justice, and brought to the conversation a philosophical and ethical lens. Achieving health equity ensures the highest level of health for all with special attention to those at greater risk of poor health, with particular attention to social conditions. Sridhar, I'm particularly interested in how you understand and define health equity and how it intersects with healthy ageing and the wellbeing of older people.
1: Thank you very much for that incredibly central question. And it is, you know, very as much as you said that our concern for health equity is trying to ensure that everybody reaches their full potential regarding their health and well-being. And we have a special concern for individuals that might be doing the worst off with an attention to social conditions. I couldn't have come up with a better definition or ideal notion of what health equity is. So what I'm going to do is just take a couple of minutes and kind of go backwards and sort of see where we came from and where we're headed. So right now in popular media, health equity has become incredibly popular and growing, and it is capturing a variety of different kinds of concerns. So for example, in the United States, one of the biggest concerns around health inequalities and health unfairness and health injustice is the health achievements being so widely different between white and black Americans. And so when people talk about health equity, what they are focused on is that disparity, that difference, that inequity between white and black Americans and the health achievements uh, and opportunities and outcomes in, in those two groups. But it doesn't necessarily only have to do with the differences between white and black Americans. What we can do is look at across lots of different kinds of social groups and also different kinds of people and countries as well. So I would say the kind of concept or term really started in the early 1990s where people were really moving away from this idea that health differences or health inequalities are either because of biology of the individual or because what they're individually doing, but really trying to understand that there's these patterns of social differences in health outcomes. And we need to really kind of take a look at why are these patterns of health inequalities and what can we do in order to improve those inequalities. And that's the kind of burgeoning of it. So, some people think, oh, well, you know, we should use health equality as the term. And what happens there is that immediately we start to see that there is some natural biological differences in life expectancy between, say, men and women. So, we don't want to achieve equality across men and women because that would essentially mean that we would want to make women's health less healthy in order to make it equal to that of men. And that just does not sit right. So the concept of equity is sort of trying to capture this more nuanced idea that taking into account biological differences, we still want to address lots of other kinds of inequalities and health differences in order to uh, make sure that everybody's having the best opportunity to be healthy. So I'm sorry if that was a lot, but I just wanted to go backwards and sort of say, okay, where did we start from? Why is health equality not the right idea? And health equity is a much more nuanced and complex idea. You asked a second thing is, what does this have to do with healthy aging and older people? And I'm going to use the term older people rather than assume that aging means older people. So for health equity among older people, what's happened is that we have, I think, um, very basic idea that somehow getting older means becoming less healthy. And getting older means somehow that we are less able to physically function. And that idea has been over and over again critiqued, shown to be not true, but nevertheless, it persists. But what we want to show in regards to health equity is that when we look at older people within countries and across countries, there's remarkable differences in terms of which kinds of older people are able to do what and how good quality of life they have and what sort of good health that they have. So what we see is that, you know, whatever the distribution pattern is in a population about health, when you take a look at older people, that distribution actually is much wider so that the worst off are even more worse off when you're older and the better off tend to be really doing really well. So that equity question is you know, not just older people as a whole getting an opportunity to be healthy as they can be in their older ages, but looking within the group of older people and saying, what can we do to reduce the inequalities or inequities that are making certain older people less healthy than other older people? And what are the different kinds of interventions and social conditions that we can change to ensure that all older people have an opportunity, have the best health that they can in their older ages? I'm sorry if I gave a lot in that, but I hope that that helps or sort of addresses the question that you asked.
0: Sridhar. that really set the scene beautifully, I think, and really understanding inequalities versus inequities is fundamental to putting into action policy change. I was particularly interested with, you know, the patterns of social differences that occur across populations but also within the populations of older people and how that further amplifies and exaggerates, you know, the fundamental inequities in their access to health and social care systems. You know, Nancy... You are both the CEO of the American Heart Association, but the co-chair of the World Economic Forum, Global Health Equity Network. Building off what Sidra has just talked about, I want to focus on the health inequities brought about by social conditions. And to what extent
2: is the Global Health Equity Network working in this field? To what end? Yes, thank you so much. And, you know, let me just um, say that I also appreciate the definitions that were just shared because I think it's really important that we have a common foundation of knowledge as we talk about issues so important as health equity, especially in our um, older populations. And I'll be glad to talk about the World Economic Forum. Let me also just say at the American Heart Association, we've been long committed to achieving health equity through science, research, policy change and community transformation. And our goal is to ensure that every person everywhere has an equal opportunity to attain their full health potential, regardless of race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, or any of the social determinants of health. And one of the biggest priorities we have at the American Heart Association is on making sure that we identify and remove barriers to healthcare access and quality for all because we understand how important access to high quality health care is, to having long and healthy lives. So on your question about the World Economic Forum, yes, I'm honored to serve as co-chair of the Global Health Equity Network, where we're very focused on mobilizing corporations and members of the World Economic Forum throughout the country to really take a pledge to make sure that we are not allowing any gaps in equity, uh, making sure there are no gaps in how each person is able to access health and well-being. And we know that corporations have a significant role to play um, in terms of both the workforces in their organizations, as well as the communities that they serve.
0: Thank you for that, Nancy. I just want to also be a little bit provocative at the moment and say, you know, we have these standard phrases about leave no person behind, when in fact we know people are being left behind just by the very nature of the environment in which they're born into. And there is something about the ethical considerations surrounding equity and healthy ageing. So I want to turn to Sridhar. You know, from your experiences, what are the injustices that older people face and why should we be making changes to protect the rights of older people? Because some of us would say, but they've had their life. Therefore, if there's investments to be made, surely the government should invest in the future populations?
1: So that's a doozy of a question, as we Americans say, and you kind of um, put both uh, gauntlets down, I guess. So let me me take um, a kind of a calm approach to both of these very quite difficult questions that you've just posed. One, what are the worst injustices that older people around the world face? Um, And I would be foolish to try to identify to you the categories and the specific cases because the suffering that older people around the world who are facing the worst injustices face are excruciating and painful and horrific. They range from uh, sexual abuse of older people, whether it's financial manipulation and theft, whether it's physical insecurity, whether it's starvation, physical abuse. There's also conflict um, and how older people in conflict have to suffer and often left behind in conflict because they can't leave the area because they're old and frail. The lack of medicines that they need, the amount of suffering and pain that they uh, endure, the physical impairments that they could be addressed, whether it be sight uh, hearing or mobility that they don't get access to or covered, um, and also just uh, shame, embarrassment, social exclusion, social isolation. So those are just categories. I'm not going to give you specific cases of the worst injustice that older people have faced. I think the way that people suffer are so numerous, um, but you know the way that we get our hand around it is sort of categorize them into a variety of different things. I think that some organizations have begun to actually identify and categorize and document these kinds of abuses and injustices, and I'm very glad that they are. And I want to tell you what a great step change that is because 10, 20 years ago, older people suffering abuses would not have qualified as an abuse or injustice. They would have thought of it as one individual case of something bad happening in a family. But now we systematically can show that societies uh, communities are sort of neglectful and abusive of older people in a variety of different ways. And then we can sort of look at particular subpopulations, whether it be men, women, older people with learning impairments, with physical impairments, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I don't think I can give you a better appreciation of the magnitude and scale and scope of the Injustices that older people suffer. If we were to think about its spectrum, you know, we can think about even less uh, what you know physically threatening abuses that older people suffer, which is basic discrimination based randomly on their chronological age. So think about not being able to work anymore because you've had your ex-birthday or not being able to enter a place because you've had your ex-birthday or not being able to do the things that you love to do because your ex-birthday. And These random ways in which certain policies and programs are implemented based on your age, a chronological age, is a particular kind of discrimination that certain societies have found a way to justify or have not really seen as being unjust. So I'm going to leave that there in terms of all the horrible and and sort of uh, injustices and unfairness that older people suffer. The second kind of statement that you made is uh, a very common sort of statement that when you point to different kinds of situations and you say to governments or policymakers or communities, hey, older people are suffering or they are not having as good quality of life as they could have, why don't you do something? And the response is often, well, we've got a variety of different needs and we have very limited resources of various different kinds. And older people, well, they've had their life Uh, opportunities, and they've had their life chances, and they've done what they've done with their lives. And so it seems more fair that we should give people at a younger ages the opportunity to live their lives rather than older people. And just because I'm a philosopher, I could sit here and give you an hour lecture on why that's all wrong in a variety of different ways. But one thing that I would point out in response, and this is, I think, probably my strongest thing, is that one every human being no matter where they are in their life course deserves and has a right to dignity and that dignity can be a variety of different ways and societies might define but that claim to basic decent human life and quality of a life worth the dignity of a human being does not end because you had a particular birthday. It should end never because even people who have died and the way that their bodies handled is a dignity question and you have to make sure that you do that. So that's one. The second thing is that it's profoundly unfair to me that if you think about many societies, many low and middle income countries, but also in rich countries, where somebody has a horrible life and they manage to get to age X, And then you say to them, well, you managed to get to age X and therefore we can't really do anything for you. I think that is probably my sort of point, which is say they have more entitlement for you to help them now than the fact that you didn't help them throughout their life. So those would be some of the kinds of responses that I would give if someone said to me, well, older people have had their life and therefore we should really focus on younger people.
0: Yeah, look, Sridhar, it was a bit of a curly question, but I think fundamental to what you talked about was our innate responsibility as human beings as part of systems to create that environment that enables, not disables, but enables people of all ages um, and, in this case, enables older people to do what they have reason to value. And that process of social conditions give rise to opportunities. So, look, thank you. I think also the way that you framed the ethical considerations, you know, resonates with healthy aging and frailty, the frailty of human beings, because it is certainly a range. Nancy, I want to talk with you a little bit about one of the killers of society, cardiovascular disease. I don't know whether it's number one up there yet, but shame on us. How does health equity influence health outcomes for people with cardiovascular disease?
2: Well, let me just say absolutely um, and sadly, cardiovascular diseases are the world's number one killer. They have been for years, and we have a lot of work to do. And of course, it's really critical that we prioritize the needs of older people who are managing cardiovascular disease. And we need to acknowledge their unique vulnerabilities to health inequities. Um, We know that issues like access to quality health care, nutritious food, safe housing, transportation and other resources are really critical to allow people to both manage um, their health and well-being but deal with cardiovascular diseases, which, uh, of course, do impact people of all ages, races, ethnicities, sexual orientations, but especially um, persons age 65 or older who are much more likely than younger people to suffer a heart attack, to have a stroke, or to develop coronary heart disease and heart failure. Um, We know that heart disease is also a major cause of disability, as is stroke. Um, It can limit the activity of older persons and really erode the quality of life that people are able to enjoy. And so this is why it's so vital that we think about healthy aging or older persons um, with a health equity lens and also why it's so important that health professionals make sure that aging patients, especially those who are managing cardiovascular disease, are partners in their own healthcare and have access to the same quality of care as younger persons regardless of their social and economic status. I might just mention that in December of 2022, we published a scientific statement on managing the acute coronary syndrome in older adults, uh, which really reviewed the age related changes that uh, predispose aging individuals to acute coronary syndrome and what it takes to manage that complexity of syndromes that uh, can cause advanced cardiovascular disease. We really, um, in this paper, looked at the influence of the common geriatric syndromes on cardiovascular disease outcomes, and we recommended age-appropriate guidelines um, for management of the disease, such as transitions of care, use of cardiac rehab, palliative care, and holistic approaches to health.
0: You know, that's a very fulsome response, Nancy, and it really is a canvas of what I would envisage being high-income countries. And that's not the case. We know that that's not the case. So I'm trying to unpack this a little bit more because cardiovascular disease is still the number one killer in the world. And yet we know that, you know, the social constructs of healthy ageing and frailty are really embedded much deeper so what about if I put to you prevention access equity and the degree to which government are investing in health promotion and prevention you know is that a position that we should be advocating more strongly for across the world because it seems to me that there are some fundamental modifiable factors such as messages that respect that not everybody has the same level of health literacy, for example. So to what degree can we think about government investing much more in
2: health promotion and prevention through an equity lens? What would the world look like then? Well, let me just say, we strongly advocate for governments to focus on prevention through an equity lens. You know, with cardiovascular diseases in particular, so much of the disease is preventable. There are modifiable risk factors that a person who is not focused in their younger years on things like absence of tobacco, physical activity, healthful diets... Um, levels of physical, I think I said physical activity, you know, these issues then create risk factors later in life. Elevated blood pressure, elevated cholesterol, elevated blood sugars, and body mass indexes over an appropriate rate. And, And these all become the risk factors for developing coronary heart disease, and or having a stroke. And so it's really a shame that our governments hold investments in prevention to a different standard than investments in treatment and care. And if we could switch that mindset, that if we could help all of our populations, including our older populations, in preventing their risk of having these Painful, expensive, and emotionally draining diseases as persons become older, it would be a wonderful world. We spend so much on treatment and drugs and devices, you know, all that are necessary to help our populations live longer and healthier. But my goodness, if we could just focus on prevention earlier, um, we could save much of this human suffering. And also, burden on health and social care systems. Of course.
0: Sarita, I'm also trying to ask you to put your hat on as a decision maker, as a thought leader, as a philosopher, and you're sitting in front of the minister. You know, what is the business case for government investing more strongly in um, health promotion and prevention through an equity lens? What would you tell them?
1: So I think there's two things that, uh, well, so one, we know that the business case is not in front of the Minister of Health, but it's actually in front of the Minister of Finance. And this has become more of the story these days, is that the Minister of Health is really focused on disease programs and not really about financing health programs. And so that's why more and more of us are sitting in front of ministers of finance to make the case for health issues and also... Uh, health financing issues and promotion and prevention. So let's say that we have both of them in front of us. I think the if it's a business case, then what this means is that there's two things that people look at in terms of financing of health and healthcare. One is how much money is this going to save me or how much money is this going to cost me and what are the things that I'm going to gain if it costs me something. So I think that in the case of uh, prevention versus care and cure, what we know is that based on demographics, most low and middle income countries will have uh, you know much greater older populations in the future and uh, despite that they might have also younger populations growing as well is that many of the most older people and older people in general around the world will be in low and middle income countries. As a result, um, if they are not healthy, then the burden of expenses for their healthcare will fall on their families because there are not universal healthcare systems and etc. And so you're going to see a lot of families uh, become much more constrained, but also you'll find there are certain families who become even more deprived as a result of having to spend money on preventable. Disease, healthcare, and so that's one thing that we should be looking at is what are the consequences in terms of impoverishment and family household poverty affected by greater sort of expenditure on care, especially communicable diseases over a long period of time, and, and whether that matters to the government or not. Second is that um, in terms of you know the loss of a variety of inputs into society and the economy when people are either taken out of those environments, work, labor force, or whether it be other kinds of work and so meaningful social roles as a result of illness, that you lose, and particularly in a development country or LMIC context, you want all the people that you can producing and also contributing to society. That's another kind of thing that you could uh, save by sort of doing prevention, Um, And there's also a great amount of inequities, whether it's children caring for older people or women caring for older people within the family or other people. That's a kind of burden that's preventable. You could also address through prevention. So you could monetarily calculate all the things that those costs and how much that's taking away from, you know, other kinds of productive inputs into economy and society. But I think the bigger question here is that, healthcare is something that the economy knows well. It knows how to commodify it, it knows how to make it, it knows how to price it and to make money for it. Prevention is something that the economy and companies and corporations don't know how to quantify and basically make money from. So, you know, I'm an American and there's lots of Americans trying to figure out how do I make money from making people healthy versus how do I make money from dealing with people's illnesses and diseases. Um, And this is a problem worldwide, is that you have a greater advocacy and groups, whether it be corporations or patients who want governments to spend money on health care, then you have healthy people saying, I want the government to spend money on keeping me healthy over the rest of my life. So there is a great a difference between advocates for prevention, promotion, and keeping people healthy versus advocates for spend more money on healthcare and disease management and care. And we have to figure out how to solve that discrepancy. How do we get more advocates on the prevention and promotion side?
2: And
0: of course, we're always dealing with the political cycle too. And this is a particularly charged area, the health dollars. Nancy, I'd like to turn to you and and talk a little bit about what are the strategies and key actions of the World Economic Forum when it comes to global health equity. The World Economic Forum has a big, loud, authoritative voice. So what actions are you taking as co-chair of this important network to change the narrative and the
2: actions when it comes to health equity? Sure. Thank you. And and let me just, again, start by framing the purpose of the Global Health Equity Network of the World Economic Forum. We have a mandate to shape healthier and more inclusive countries in a more inclusive world. Our goal is to convene executive leaders across industries, sectors, and geographies to collaborate on solutions and to prioritize action to eliminate health disparities and promote equitable access to healthcare around the world. So we're focusing on four key areas, strengthening health systems, promoting health financing, promoting digital health, and promoting the safe and appropriate use of health data. And one of the things the World Economic Forum does very well and uh, you know the Global Health Equity Network will continue this fine tradition is to facilitate dialogue and knowledge sharing between stakeholders and to develop and scale innovative solutions to increase access to healthcare in low and middle income countries. We'll also work to build partnerships and develop collaborations to Better address the global challenge of health equity. And as I mentioned in Davos just a few weeks ago, we announced the Zero Health Gaps Pledge, which is a CEO-level pledge that's rallying global leaders around a slate of 10 commitments, affirming um, the intent of these CEOs to embed health equity as a tenant of their business practice, their offerings, their communities, and with their ecosystem partners, Um, These actions include things like supporting diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, making sure that these companies are leading the way by providing accessible, high-quality health care and mental health services, making sure that employees across the supply chain are being paid a living wage, and investing in safe living environments. So we are excited as we launch this Global Health Equity Network, and we know that our work will help catalyze and drive the global conversation about health equity and collective action that is needed by government, civil society, and the private sector.
0: You know, it seems very sort of mirror-like to IFA's way of working, which is cross-sector and cross-discipline. The importance of relationships and partnerships to develop a common agenda, whether they come to the issue from their particular angle. So can you describe the importance of interdisciplinary partnerships and collaboration to drive change? You know, what is at the forefront of your thinking in
2: developing this network? And how do you measure success? Well, you know, I think it's very clear, you know, you take any critical issue that has been addressed you know, in the world. And it absolutely takes a multidisciplinary cross-sector commitment to make it happen. You know, companies cannot do on their own. Governments cannot do on their own. People cannot do on their own. So working together around a common unifying goal and North Star is really what it takes to make big social change happen. That is really, again, the way we're focusing on this critical topic of health equity, and we believe that making sure that people know and understand both the issues, the barriers, and potential solutions is really important. And so one of the things that we're doing is we're creating a learning lab so that we can be sure that people are learning from each other as we try new initiatives, new policies, um, et cetera, around health equity. And measurement is really important. And we've talked um, extensively uh, about measurement. And from my point of view, there are both short-term measures and long-term health outcomes. And we can't focus on one to the exception of the other. You know, measures of progress along the way are really critical to get to an ultimate goal of having improved equitable health for all. And so we're in the process of developing a set of measures that will be launched as part of the toolkit um, for our work. Thank you very much. And we look forward to learning a little bit more about that toolkit when it's launched.
0: As we come to the close of this podcast, Srida, I'm going to ask a question of the future. You're the Associate Professor in Global Health and Philosophy at King's College. What's the future of global health?
1: The future of global health is I'm going to tell you what I hope that it is, and I'm going to tell you what I think will happen. Right now, we've seen over the last three years, one of the most important revelations, which is that we've kind of pulled the veil away from what people are saying versus what they're actually doing. So one of the things for since the late 1990s and early 2000s was that global health was seen as this very benevolent, uh, everything's great. And this is an example for international cooperation and it's an example for corporate and philanthropic efforts where we uh, are all sort of, you know, showing how much we care for each other and providing assistance to those countries who uh, need uh, help with their health issues, etc. I think what's happened very clearly, not only uh, because of the pandemic, but definitely one part of it, is that we see that the system is built on uh, very much, the global health apparatus is actually built on a great amount of inequity and self-interest, so that no amount of global health programs and efforts will ever override uh, certain kinds of self-interest, whether it be national self-interest of the richest countries, but also middle and poor income countries. And that when we come to fundamental uh, sort of sharing of ideas and knowledges and opportunities and health, that they will not be shared equally, that they actually sort of first go to the people that are best off in the world and then we will think about how to share it with that. So it's very hard for people, um, and I really admire... The effort of the World Economic Forum and the Global Health Equity Network, because you know right after the pandemic to start a network called the Global Health Equity Network is an amazing project. It's because it's sort of like, you know, how do we how do we move from what just we just saw to what the way that things should be? And so I think it's a it's a really important effort. Um, so what I think is that the world is much better. I feel much better and much more comfortable that everybody kind of sees the true picture rather than us sort of living in a world of, you know, I work in global health and therefore I am a virtuous person who's sort of doing really good things or my company or my stuff, is that we now really sort of see that Um, You know, our health, number one, around the world is interdependent. There's just no way that we can deny that any of our health is just local or what I do at home or by myself, that our health is very much globally interdependent. And that we are all in very much in a sort of, you know, vulnerable, and there's a great amount of vulnerability. Our health is not, you know, no matter how much I take care of my health, there is a great amount of vulnerability because we live on this planet with other human beings. And that vulnerability is something that we need to acknowledge and recognize. Um, you know, in terms of what will happen in the future is that we are currently seeing a great process in which... A lot of different kinds of agreements and cooperation efforts and et cetera are being negotiated. While the rhetoric, once again, is about, oh, we're all sort of doing this stuff, we have the same kind of power imbalances and power plays and interests sort of at work. And so, you know, whether, you know, that's going to change in any dramatic way, I don't know. What I do think is that we really have to hope that you know, international negotiators aside and politicians aside, that people who now see that they are equally at risk as someone else in another country, that their relatives who live in this country or that country are sort of either more advantaged or less advantaged and that doesn't seem fair or sort of there needs to be do something, those kinds of relationships will allow us to say we need to create a better global architecture for health But also, it's not just for health. It's like we need a better global architecture that is more fair and that allows all human beings to live good quality lives. And I think that that I'm hoping. And the reason I hope is because if you think back to the shock of the HIV AIDS epidemic and the profound global change that that initiated... What we've seen with the pandemic is almost like 10 years of, you know, the AIDS epidemic compressed into one or two. And we're just sort of acting as if we're back to normal. It's not. There's going to be years of repercussions and the transformation of children and young adults and other people just to get their head around what just happened and what this means for equality, for intergenerational equality, why did older people die so much in the pandemic and what should we do about it and what do we think about sort of international equity. So all of those things I think will take time to unfold um, and I'm hopeful that that will have a positive impact uh, you know aside from what the politicians and the international negotiators are doing.
0: So really, it's our responsibility to a large part to to work and drive agendas. And that brings me to you, Nancy. You know, cardiovascular disease was used as almost a case study in this conversation about equity and healthy ageing. Can you move forward 10 years and what achievements have been made globally when it comes to the equity in accessing screening, treatment, management those with cardiovascular disease, where are we now?
2: Well, I think it's so critical as we take action today to envision a world 10, 20, 30 years from now where we have increased funding for access uh, to affordable and comprehensive cardiovascular health care and enhanced insurance coverage specifically tailored for at-risk communities and aging communities as well. Um, We also, as we've discussed, need to prioritize preventive care access to screenings so that everyone can maintain their health and reduce their risk of developing cardiovascular disease. And then I think we also need to think about promoting community-driven education about the critical role of cardiovascular health for at-risk and aging communities and provide financial assistance where needed to inspire healthy behaviors. And then the final thing we didn't really have a chance to talk about today, but I think is so important and it's work we're doing at the American Heart Association is trying to match you know the future of health technologies in a way that can allow healthy aging um, at home for persons at risk of cardiovascular disease, but honestly just safety, security, and confidence of persons in their own um, home with their families. Thank you, Nancy. Today in our podcast, Equity in Healthy Aging,
0: you know, we discuss the impact of the social determinants of health on access to care, inclusion in health and social care systems and health throughout the life course. We certainly deviated a little and touched on ethics and philosophy and and, uh, the World Economic Forum, but I want to give each of our experts the opportunity to give our audience a takeaway message. So I'll start with you, Nancy. What's
2: your takeaway message, you know, to the listeners today? My message is that every single person has a role to play Um, as an advocate as a leader in global health or in governments, um, as a person that has compassion for other people. You know, at simple acts of kindness, you know, having these critical issues on our own personal advocacy agendas can really make a difference. It's the unification of voices that can help um, maintain issues of health equity for our older populations and for all of us at the four front and centre of conversations. And so it's our duty, it's our obligation, and it should be our honour uh, to continue to focus on these issues.
0: Thank you very much, Nancy. And the floor is yours, Rita. Um
1: I would say that to anyone listening, my message would be that I think the injustice and unfairness that older people experience worldwide is one of the most under-recognized issue of our times. Uh, It's something that we think of as being a natural thing that somehow if you're older, then you're somehow less able and that's okay because that's nature. And I want to say that that's clearly not true, that social environments and conditions over the life course, but also in the current context, determine which older people are able to have good quality lives while other people suffer enormously unnecessarily. So, you know, I think first and foremost, this is a justice issue. Second is that I think, you know, I encourage everyone to actually explore further the idea of inequalities among older people. If the Queen of England can live very long or the President of America, no matter which party, lives very long, why is it that these people live so long while other people do not? It's not because they're biologically superior, it's because of lots of things that happen around their life and their structures and their support systems. And so just think about those inequalities and why the American Senate is full of certain aged men and why they live so long in, and in power while other people are not. So this, I think, really is the issue of the future, about looking at older people, but who survives longer and what sort of control and role and positions they have in society while other ones die prematurely or suffer enormously and are socially excluded.
0: Thank you, Sruti. And of course, living a long life with a quality of life. And I think that's what we're all aiming for. So thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you again to my guests, Ms. Nancy Brown and Professor Sridhar Venkatapuram. The discussion today highlights the need to prioritise the rights of older people and the rights of all persons to achieve healthy ageing, but also the importance of initiatives like the World Economic Forum, Global Health Equity Network, and dialogues like these that support the need for organisations and governments to prioritise health equity as a means of achieving healthy ageing and valuing life in later years. The International Federation on Ageing wishes to thank Amgen for their support in the creation, design and production of the podcast series, Reframing Healthy Ageing. To find more information on this episode and read the associated blog, please visit ifa.ngo. Let's continue the dialogue on healthy aging, follow, like and engage with us on social media at IFAging. See you next time.